surgeon general today. What else did he say as this country is entering a very critical time for slowing this virus? You may have noticed that one common frame of reference for the coronavirus pandemic has been war, with rhetoric about wartime economic footing, wartime presidents, home front mass mobilizations, and efforts to combat the enemy virus. Just recently, the U.S. Surgeon General even recalled the history of Pearl Harbor and 9-11 to encourage Americans to prepare for tough times ahead. The next week is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment. It's going to be our 9-11 moment. It's going to be the hardest moment for many Americans in their entire lives. Well, clearly the hyperbole bug bit him in the behind. Yet amidst all this rhetoric of war and collective remembrance of past conflicts, one event that was obscured in the news coverage of COVID-19 was the 75th anniversary of one of the most significant aerial bombing raids of World War II. No, I'm not talking about Pearl Harbor, but the firebombing of Tokyo on the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945. What made the firebombing of Tokyo such a devastating event? Why did the US military adopt different bombing strategies in Germany and Japan? And how is the Tokyo firebombing remembered today, 75 years later? I'm Tristan Gruno. And this is Japan on the Record. For more on the firebombing of Tokyo, I'm joined by Dr. David Fedman, Assistant Professor of History in the School of Humanities at the University of California at Irvine and co-curator of JapanAirRaids.org. Dr. Fedman is the author of A Cartographic Fade to Black, along with Dr. Kerry Caracas in the Journal of Historical Geography, as well as author of the Place Annihilation Module in the Bodies and Structures Digital Resource. I started by asking Dr. Fedman to take us back to March 9th, 1945, and to describe what happened that night. In a single evening, approximately 16 square miles of the capital are reduced to ashes. In somewhere in the realm of 100,000 civilians lose their lives. Roughly a million are left homeless as a result of what comes to be known as the Great Tokyo Air Raid. I think it's important to start before March 9th, actually, so that we can kind of appreciate the shift in tactics that that evening ushered in. So prior to the raid on March 9th and 10th, the USAF, the United States Army Air Force, had conducted a fairly steady string of air raids on Tokyo itself, uh, really from November 1944 onwards. And they were staging these raids from the Mariana Islands in the Pacific, which the U.S. military had wrested from the Japanese that summer. So by March 1945, Tokyoites were fairly well accustomed to air raid sirens, to being mobilized to kind of prepare for falling bombs, uh, which I, I think is also important to understand kind of the civilian reaction on the ground. However, uh, to the chagrin of U.S. sort of high-ranking military planners, the heads of the Army Air Force, these early raids were lackluster at best. And this was in part because they were adhering to a strategic doctrine of high-altitude precision bombing of military and industrial targets. The AAF was particularly focused on eliminating sites of airplane and airplane part manufacture. And uh, they weren't particularly successful in doing so. This was due to a mix of inclement weather, of tactical difficulties, and actually just uh, locating and striking these targets. And so there was a growing pressure in the kind of upper echelons of the AAF to get results and to get them quickly. And it's 
kind of within this context that Curtis LeMay, a high-ranking official in the USAAF who had also had a prominent role in the bombing of German targets, takes over the 21st Bomber Command in the Mariana Islands and ushers in this shift to incendiary bombing, which is really kind of inaugurated on the evening of March 9th, 10th, 1945. On that evening, well over 300 B-29 fortresses that had only recently been sort of assembled in the Mariana Islands, Saipan in particular, were sent in waves to set Tokyo aflame. They were stripped of explosive ordnance, which was quite heavy. Uh, It slowed the planes down. It gobbled up a lot of fuel. And instead, they were loaded with M69 cluster bombs, which uh, contained jellied gasoline rods that were dropped by the thousands on target zones in the eastern part of Tokyo, the Shitamachi district, a working class neighborhood in Tokyo that was well known for its combustibility. And the, the effects of this shift were absolutely devastating. In the course of just a few hours, wave after wave of B-29 whips up a cluster of fires, which grows into a great conflagration, which in turn envelops a big part of the city. And in a single evening, 16 square miles of the capital are burned to the ground, claiming somewhere in the ballpark of 100,000 civilian lives, making well over a million homeless in, in a single evening. This is unquestionably the single greatest blow dealt to the Japanese enemy to date. And it's absolutely devastating for Tokyoites and brings forth a significant shift in the civilian experience of the war itself. We just had the 75th anniversary of this March 9th firebombing of Tokyo. And so often the narrative that we get of the Tokyo air raid is that it's a singular event in Tokyo. But in fact, Tokyo was the first of a total of 67 cities, I believe, that were actually firebombed during the war, including some such as Toyama that were 98% destroyed. And sometimes, you know, this destruction of Tokyo does seem to overshadow these other 66 cities that were destroyed. But then in turn, you know, even the narratives of the Tokyo firebombing that we got in places like CNN was saying that this was somewhat of a forgotten event because it in turn is overshadowed by the more notorious atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I was curious, you know, as a scholar of the topic who has spent a lot of time researching the Tokyo firebombing, what was your reaction to the media coverage of the 75th anniversary? On the whole, I'm I'm happy that the topic has been thrust into public view, especially for American readers in Western media. I mean, for the most part, I'm, there is uh, a general kind of ignorance of the full scope of firebombing in general. So just to have periodic reminders that it wasn't just Hiroshima and Nagasaki that were obliterated, I think is productive. So I'm, I don't at all frown on the anniversary coverage of the firebombing of Tokyo. I think this, the single most important thing that I try to drive home when I lecture on this topic in the U.S. or in, in my classrooms at UC Irvine is to just really underscore the full scope of the Japan air raids, the strategic bombing of Japan. Americans might know of the great Tokyo air raid, but very few appreciate that significant portions of 66 different cities were burned to the ground by war's end. And the Tokyo firebombing was really kind of the first step in this shift towards incendiary tactics. In very quick succession, B-29s directed their firepower to Osaka, Nagoya, Kobe, these other really large industrial complexes that are undeniably important to Japan's 
war machine. I think we need to go a step further to recognize what happens after that point. After Tokyo and these really large metropolitan areas are bombed, B-29s then direct their wrath upon really small, kind of obscure prefectural capitals, Nagaoka, Kofu, as you mentioned, Toyama, of which 98% is destroyed on the evening of August 1st. And this is, I think, a question that really merits more scrutiny. On what grounds were these smaller cities that are of negligible importance to Japan's military and industrial output targeted and destroyed? Are these terror bombings. I mean, what is the objective of these campaigns, if not to strike fear into the heart of civilians and military officials so that they might lay down their arms? These raise, I think, unsettling moral questions about the bombing of civilians that do not square that well with triumphalist narratives of the good war that Americans love to tell themselves. And so I think that's part of why it's so important that we look beyond Tokyo. I mean, again, we we need to recognize that the great Tokyo air raid, the firebombing of Tokyo is absolutely devastating in terms of lives lost, homes destroyed. For very good reason, it's, it's recognized as one of the most destructive air raids in world history. But we can't stop there. We need to map out the full scope and the evolution of this bombing campaign as it leads into the decision to drop atomic bombs as well. I will say I I was rather pleased this year to see major outlets run stories in English on the 75th anniversary of the Tokyo Air Raid. Both CNN and the New York Times did a fine job in covering this because they did something that I have really not seen until this year, and that is profile Japanese survivors of this raid. So often the story is kind of told solely from the perspective of B-29 crewmen and bombardiers and pilots. And both of the major articles from Western outlets went out of their way to tell the story of the women and the children who were on the ground and what it was like both to experience these firestorms, but also kind of the crusade of these survivors in post-war Japan to have their suffering and their trauma recognized by the state and by the Japanese public writ large. And this is very much an ongoing struggle on the part of firebomb survivors, both to be able to kind of amplify their voices and, and tell their stories, but also to have their own trauma and victimhood integrated within broader narratives of victimization that tend to highlight atomic bomb suffering above all else. But you mentioned there is a shift in American strategy towards bombing of, of Japan as opposed to the bombing of Germany. And, you know, the, these videos we see of the bombing of Germany, like you mentioned, it's this kind of high altitude precision bombing. But this attack on the night of March 9th obviously happens during the night. So what explains this shift? Well, there are a, a few important precedents that I think are worth highlighting to understand the forces at work in shaping the evolving tactics of the Army Air Force. One is the bombing of German cities by the Royal Air Force, which is conducted primarily through a similar type of bombing, incendiary bombing. The U.S. military is closely studying what they're seeing, and they're playing a supporting role over the skies of Germany. And, and so they're very keen to understand the effects on the ground of the bombing of cities like Dresden and Hamburg and to figure out how they can apply those tactics to the enemy in Japan. 
Another really important precedent, I, I think, lies in 1923, the Great Kanto Earthquake, when a good part of Tokyo is enveloped in flames as a result of an earthquake turned conflagration. It's absolutely devastating to Tokyo, and it occurred at a moment when new media allowed the world to watch on. And it was no secret to the global community that urban Japan was renowned for its combustibility. So American war planners by the 1940s were very kind of keen to figure out how they could engineer a conflagration of their own. And in fact, they go back and they study quite carefully the geography of destruction in the wake of the Great Kanto earthquake and the nature composition of the built urban environment in Japan uh, so that they can best understand its vulnerability to fire. And it's these precedents, I think, are really important in shaping how the U.S. Army Air Force approaches Japanese urban space and how they set out to kind of exploit what is widely seen within military circles years before this bombing campaign commences as a unique vulnerability to incendiary bombing tactics. And speaking of this preparations that the Americans were doing, I, I should mention you published this great article called A Cartographic Fade to Black in the Journal of Historical Geography, specifically looking at some of the impacts of mapping on American bombing strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what do you mean by cartographic fade to black and what role did mapping play in all of this? Sure. Uh, so for the last decade or so, I've been working with Kerry Caracas, a geographer at CUNY Staten Island, to collect and digitize primary sources from archives in Japan and the United States related to the targeting and destruction of urban Japan during World War II. All of these have been compiled at japanairaids.org, a bilingual digital archive that we maintain. And in the process of sort of digging through archives in the modern military section of the U.S. National Archives, we just came across this incredible trove of cartographic material. And it, it became very clear to us that maps were the lifeblood of this process of targeting, planning, and prosecuting the Japan air raids. And once we kind of collected enough maps, we began to figure out that we could kind of assemble them in a sequence that kind of offers a new perspective on the evolving tactics and the eroding ethics that ultimately laid waste to urban Japan. So what we've done in this article is really tell the story of the destruction of urban Japan through the maps that were handled at every step of what we call the kill chain, the sequence of mission planning, tactical implementation, post-strike surveillance that was at the heart of uh, the destruction of each city. And maps, I think, are particularly interesting sources on a number of levels. For one thing, they tell a story about the mobilization of geospatial intelligence uh, that I think we often take for granted. Geographers, map makers were enlisted into the U.S. military as never before. And this article kind of tells the story of their contributions to the war and also how the U.S. Army Air Force, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, called on all Americans out of a sense of duty and obligation to country to hand over their travel accounts from Japan, photographs they'd taken on tourist trips to Japan, any sort of cartographic information that they thought would be helpful to understanding how to plan and prosecute these raids. So at one level, the article kind of looks at the story of how maps are used to plan the war. 
At another level, the name itself, a cartographic fade to black, is a reference to how, as the bombing campaign wears on, cartographic representations of urban Japan are emptied of any indications of social life on the ground. And this is really important to, I think, understand the dehumanization that is part and parcel of total war, of World War II. If you look at maps, they progressively deny the existence of any indications of civilian life on the ground, of women, children, of schools, of restaurants. They cast Japanese urban space as singularly military and industrial in composition, which makes its destruction that much more palatable to bombardiers in the air or to the American public across the Pacific. And and that's, I think, a, a really important facet of this bombing campaign that hasn't really been explored in as much depth as it ought to be. For those of you out there who want to learn more about kind of the survivor experience and get a better sense of how Tokyoites themselves have gone about memorializing the Great Tokyo Air Raid and preserving memories of those who experienced it, I would strongly encourage you to visit the Air Raid Damage Resource Center, the Tokyo Kushu Sensei Shirio Center. It's in the Ryogoku district. It's in the heart of the Shitamachi, the neighborhood that was targeted and destroyed in 1945. And it's really kind of a grassroots effort to remember and memorialize this experience when the Tokyo Metropolitan Government and the Japanese National Government has failed to do so. It's just a spectacular resource and just a great place to go to learn more about this particular air raid, uh, but, but also to meet survivors and hear their stories, which we'll only be able to do for a handful of years. I, I think it's worth noting that most of the survivor activists who have been at the heart of this kind of crusade to remember these firebombings are well into their 90s at this point and are only going to be around for so long to remind us of the costs and consequences of war. Just as a, a last question, you mentioned your work with JapanAirRaids.org. I understand you're also collaborating with a documentary. I am. I've been lucky to get connected with Adrian Francis. He's an Australian filmmaker, documentarian, who for the last few years has been following and recording the efforts on the part of three different survivors of the air raid, uh, one woman and two men, who have really kind of been tireless in their efforts to erect a monument to the Great Tokyo Air Raid, to push the Tokyo Metropolitan Government to compile a official list of the names of the deceased and to compensate victims, to say nothing of just general acknowledgement from the Abe administration and other political figures that this chapter of the war at home actually occurred. So the the documentary is entitled Paper City, and it's a documentary focused on three survivors of the Great Tokyo Air Raid in 1945 and their quest to memorialize their experience and their trauma to share their story, especially to younger generations, before they pass away. And since filming, two of the three individuals that are central to the film have actually passed away. So I think that really underscores the urgency of this project. I I think just also the film offers a meditation on how a city such as Tokyo has gone about remembering destruction that has been so central to its long history in a city that has 
endured so many different catastrophes, be they fire bombings or natural disasters such as earthquakes and conflagrations, how are memories of loss and regeneration inscribed in the built environment itself? How can we read the landscape of Tokyo today to understand the various ways in which it has sort of regenerated and reconstituted itself from the ashes of destruction that have been so central to the experience of Tokyoites across centuries? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>